Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is addiction. The issue of finding some kind of escape from life's problems or stresses in addictive behaviour, the chaos and harm this causes, and how to find hope when all seems hopeless. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Chantal Ishak, who works with people working to overcome addiction and with their families. Welcome, Chantal. Thank you for having me, Peter. A pleasure. Before we get started, just a reminder that if you like the show, you should subscribe on your podcast app, and that way you won't miss an episode. Let's get into it. Now, when we talk about addiction, some of the more obvious um, things that would come to people's minds are things such as heroin, shooting up drugs, these sorts of things. But that actually is a a fairly big proportion of the addicts in uh, Australia, but it's not all of them. And in fact, probably some of the more dangerous addictions begin with very mundane things. Perhaps you could begin, Chantel, by uh, running running us through some of the the biggest dangers for the everyday person. Well, the sneaky, silent danger is alcohol because it's so societally accepted. It's everywhere. It's almost required though, isn't it, in some cases? If you don't drink, you're a weirdo. Yes. Yeah, so it's more questionable why you're not drinking rather than why you are drinking. Yeah, and people Mm -hmm. seem to propose it. I mean, I remember... Well, when I had my first breakup, people go, what you need is a good drink. You know, this is their solution to, to hard times or, or, or tough times or to make you feel so, uh, so-called better. Yeah. Um, so it seems to be an almost universal thing. In fact, escaping alcohol is more difficult than... F- yeah. yeah. And on the note of alcohol, just with the shift, there's a treatment centre that I work quite closely with. And beginning of the year, probably about 30% of people that would enter that facility would be for alcohol. Now about 95% right. are for alcohol. Wow, that's a massive increase from 30 yeah. to 90%. Yeah. Wow. I wonder if that's – um. now I'm sort of probing a bit here, but because uh, other addictions you would get, a meth is obviously a big one, those kinds of ones, but they're very visible. Like it's very – it's easier to, easier to spot, if you like, yes. in someone's yeah. life when they're irregular behaviour, having to find illegal substances, that kind of thing. But alcohol is not illegal. Would you get at that centre uh, non-substance addictions? For example, the addictions of gambling, um, pornography, yeah. other kinds of addictive behaviour? Yeah, I love that you brought up gambling, for example. So Australia has – we're the biggest population of gamblers in the world. We spend in over – In the world. You we mean spend per capita? Per, in the world. I, I don't know if it's per capita, if it's per population, but our country spends the most in the world. So wow. 24 billion. But Ooh. now it's actually increased since isolation has happened and the quarantines oh. have happened. About 67% increase. And we were wow. already the largest. So gambling that's, is this, and that's in terms of online gambling. So the 67% right. increase. Yeah. That's quite dangerous because I mean I guess we're all stuck at home and and it some of these things now maybe I'm wrong about this but I imagine that some of these things don't begin with great troubles but they begin with boredom and yet there's a kind of a thrill involved in in a little win in gambling or or you know all the other things offer you a little bit of a hit is there a similarity between the addictions or are they different types of things Yeah so when you look at an addictive behavior it's great to just call it an addictive behavior, even if it is right. a substance or it's not a substance, because it's okay. a habit 
that I can't break. I've tried to break and I can't break it and it's causing me harm. So there have to be those two conditions for it to be an addictive behavior. I've tried to break it. I've tried to stop and I can't. And the second characteristic is it's harming me in some way. So it could be gambling, right. could be pornography. We're looking behaviorally, we have process addictions. So it could be gaming, it could be um, anything that yes. involves a, a process. So it's yeah. Yeah, also eating disorders do come under addictions. So if I can't stop myself from purging and binging, etc., cetera, uh, excessive exercising, any habit that I can't stop and it's harming me. So does it cause right. harm? If it's not causing harm, it's not an unhealthy habit. It's not an addiction. Is that part of the problem, though, that, that the person involved in the behavior has to come to the point where they understand that it's causing harm? Yeah. Yeah. Where they can actually see this is causing me harm. And that's why right. alcohol is sneaky. We have, when you mentioned uh, meth, when you have your obvious addictions, your really hard drugs, addictions that cause harm really quickly, really obviously, I personally think that's a blessing of an addiction because it is so obvious you are compelled to do something about it or you will die. When you right. have your sneakier addictions, they don't cause as much obvious harm in the short term anyway. Right. Your alcohol is pretty destructive in the long term. Yeah. If anyone ever has a doubt about alcohol, all you have to do is go and see someone who's in the final stage of alcoholism and, and how destructive it can be to someone's health in, in particular. But gambling, um, for example, or pornography, or uh, you mentioned gaming, that's a very interesting one. I don't know if you meant this, but computer gaming actually comes into addiction as well. Yeah. Um, it was a study uh, a long time ago now. It's almost a decade ago now in the UK, which showed that um, about 11% of online gamers in in the MMOs, in the online worlds, displayed at least the two signs of addiction that are necessary for diagnosis, like quite serious withdrawal behaviours and other, other need, you know, d neglect of other... Um, parts of their life. And also what was even more disturbing is that about 15% um, of the quickie online divorces listed gaming habits as their primary cause. And this is in the UK, but it's a pretty big percentage of divorces being attributed to the, an addictive behavior. Yeah, definitely. So the destruction isn't necessarily substance or health related. It, it can, like it expands a bit wider than that. Yeah, because it's using the same part of your brain. It's using your reward system. So there's a distinction between when you have a physical dependency to a substance. So for example, we use alcohol. If I cease drinking, my body will detox from that substance. There is a physical dependency, but that's not the actual addiction. There's a psychological addiction and that has to do with my brain. That has to do with my reward system. I'm used to dopamine and I need to work with my brain. It's not just about the body. Right. and But even before that, there's a reason I went to that hit in the first Definitely. place. Definitely. And so, for example, even though I might be used to getting my thrills, um, by the way, you can get your thrills as well from fear. So some people love horror movies because it gives them the same rush, yeah. the, uh, the kind of hit. Also, a tiny amount of that substance comes from cheese. Yes. So <laughs> Opiate receptors. A good, a good, <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> you like cheese? You'd it's love a, heroin. A lot. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. that is the case, but let's stick with the cheese. So we think this Catholic life does not endorse heroin use. Um, so, <laughs> so coming back to um, uh, the addictive behaviours, usually we can identify the problems and if we, if we can get through the detox uh, stage, we can get to a point where we don't need it anymore. But almost always there's an underlying cause, an underlying anxiety or stress yeah. 
or negativity, which sends us, if you like, looking back for that positive. Yeah. Would you say that's true of most addictions? Oh, it's definite. It's not just true of most, it's definite. There was a study on something called ACEs, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences, and they showed that the number of adverse childhood experiences a person would have, the more likely they would have an addiction. Right. So it's very connected uh, to trauma. And one of the things that comes up, at least in my very limited exposure to these things, is that people don't have to be aware that the childhood experience is affecting them for it to prompt addictive behaviour. There, there, there can often be an underlying kind of angst and, and emptiness and, um, and the escape mechanisms, which, which they didn't even realise were being hardwired into them during their childhood, yeah. manifest in adulthood. Yeah, and they don't even need to be aware of the adverse childhood experience itself. It could be a memory they cannot even recall consciously. Right. Yeah. That's that's and in some cases it's not one specific memory. It's a it's a whole range of experiences within a family setting or within a another setting. It's quite a big thing. Now in our cases, um, we're probably seeing more. I think you indicated you'd gone up to ninety something percent in the alcohol use. That's got to do with our current situation and being locked in. But it's not just the inconvenience of mm. being in the one house. It's going to be exacerbating other things, isn't it? Yes. It's having to sit with ourselves and not have any distractions that our day-to-day usually gives us. Oh, wow. That's profound. Mm. So we normally have all kinds of things distracting us during the day, particularly work. Yeah. So we have friends, we have work, we we can maybe go out with with people, watch the footy, and when all that wasn't on, and we're just forced to be alone with our thoughts, wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, it certainly messed me around in this (laughs) (laughs) team. Not just our, our thoughts. Our thoughts are... A consequence, what's behind the thoughts is the sensations we're feeling in our bodies. And that sensation you mentioned earlier of boredom. Right. Of loneliness, of discontent. What's so bad about boredom, do you think, that we we have to run away from it? The way I see boredom is that we have a stigma around the word loneliness. And instead of being able to consciously see that I feel lonely, I call it boredom because that's what I truly believe I'm feeling. But boredom right. is really just a disconnection with myself. If I was feeling right. really connected and not lonely, I could sit in silence and stare at a white wall and find beauty in that white wall. So if I'm, if I'm comfortable and confident and at peace in myself, yeah. then being alone with myself is, is okay. There's no such thing as boredom. It doesn't exist. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now, now we have to explore this. I'm sorry. We're going to put put the other stuff aside and and go here because finding now it's quite clear that we need to find peace with ourselves. But finding if so many of us are bored, I was see I was thought that the electronic age was making us into this people who couldn't be alone because we we literally can't sit for two seconds on a train or or in a, at a home without pulling the phone out or or switching on a telly or turning some music on or something. I think I've mentioned once before in the podcast, Alanis Morissette has a line in one of her songs where she says, why are you so petrified of silence? Here, can you handle this? And then she has silence. And then she says, did you think about your bills, your ex or your deadlines or when you think you're going to die or did you long for the next distraction? It's a great line in the sense of the the (laughs) longing for the next distraction. We, We kind of, oh, my goodness, I have to think. Is there, and that's just triggered another memory in me, is there a, uh, an addiction to eating. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. One of the com- 
you might know Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, but he jokes about overeating and the American problem. And he basically has this line, uh, a meeting, it's either that or feel my feelings. Yeah. There's a kind of a, it's an avoidance behavior in itself. Yeah. And not only is it avoiding feeling feelings, and so I'm going to eat, it can also be that feeling of hunger that we have a very low tolerance for. So we can't tolerate that feeling of hunger. So I need to get so rid of that. So we can't wait. Yeah, so it, it's, it's a feeling you actually feel physiologically. It's a hunger feeling. And it's not real because you're satiated. There's enough nutrients in your body. But it is a sensation. Yes, especially yeah. <laughs> in the Western world. It is a sensation. We're not going to starve. We, and we can't sit with it. It's, it's, I can't sit with this feeling. I need to fill it. I need to fill it. Mm. Now, I have a question for you, and my children are going to be listening to this now. Um, I continually tell them that they shouldn't binge watch TV shows, that they should only watch one or two episodes and then wait for a period of time. And I use the term delayed gratification meaning it's a great thing to delay yeah. your next um, enjoyment yeah. because it teaches you the cycle of life and it actually teaches you to regulate it. Because if you binge everything, my dad used to say, he who feasts every day feasts no day. Yeah. In fact, if you're constantly binging stuff, it no longer has any, any pleasure for you. It no, it no longer has any value, so you have to keep going looking for new thrills. So is that, I mean, the whole instant culture that we've developed, is that, contributing do you think oh, to this definitely so when i work with my clients we go through an entire program and one of the the sections in that program is looking at characteristics we have when we have addictive personalities and i used to say this one was on instant gratification i used to say this was quite common with people with addictive personalities but uh today it's common in absolutely everybody because it has nothing to do with addiction anymore it's our society you don't need to cook a meal anymore. Right. You can just call Uber Eats. Uh, you don't need to wait one week for your favorite series to show what's coming up. You can watch the entire series in a day. On so Netflix, we're yeah. We're so wired now for that instant gratification, and it's so important to create a habit of delayed gratification. It's There was a study done in, um, and this is also one of our parts of the program where we look at a study they did in Stanford many, many years ago. You've probably heard of it because I saw there was something going on. I don't know if it was TikTok or one of those those <laughs> little fads that came out where they were giving kids chocolates and they were saying, don't eat the chocolate yes. until I come back and recording it. And I'm like, do they realize they're doing the marshmallow experiment, which is a really famous psychology yes. experiment? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and it was- Well, perhaps for our listener, we should explain that <laughs> yeah. a little bit. The marshmallow experiment is where they put uh, they put a marshmallow in front of a kid on a plate and they say, you can either eat that now straight away or you can wait, I think it's 10, 15, 15 minutes. minutes yeah. And then if you if you haven't eaten it by then, you can have two. Yes. And um, some of them had started eating it before they'd even heard the sentence <laughs> out. <laughs> but it's a very important thing because the results of the study were intriguing. Those those who had not eaten it immediately and had waited there was some, maybe you can fill us yeah, in on those there was results. One in three were able to not eat the marshmallow by the age of four. So there was right. a, a set of four-year-olds that they did this study on. And one in three were able to delay gratification. Two out of three couldn't. So they had the self-control there, yeah. didn't they, to yeah. do that. Now, what was intriguing, though, was that they they went on and in the future studies that we could see that they actually were very successful in life because they had that ability. correlation, Peter. Like, this flips me out. You don't get a 100% correlation in anything. So 100% <laughs> of the one in three were successful in their lives. And I don't mean just right. monetarily in their goals, be it relationships, family. They were succeeding. 
100%. Well, it makes sense when you think about it, though, because you, you don't, you're not going to succeed in a relationship if you get gratification, snap, yeah. snap. You, if, you, if you say, today was crap, I'm leaving, then basically you, you've lost the relationships. You've lost all hope of success in a job. All of those things don't work out for you. You've got to have a long-term goal and you've got to have a focus on, on um, working towards long-term gratification in these things. Otherwise, it's just, the whole world falls yeah. apart. So what are the steps then? We, we, we obviously we need to find peace in ourselves. We need to find uh, the calm enough to, um, to come to that point. Uh, what what would you say in terms of let's say I I want to find that peace I want to I'm sitting at home with COVID and I want to find a way to be at peace with my own company and be comfortable. So what how would I start out? The very first thing is know that whatever you are feeling, you can handle it. Your feelings can't okay. hurt you. They're just feelings. They will pass. So. Feelings themselves are not a danger. Not a danger. You can ha- you can actually have them, and they're just there. Then they don't say anything good or bad about you. You just have feelings. We're taught how to care for our physical health. We're taught how to look after our spiritual health. We're taught how to, you know, brush your teeth, wash your hair, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Nobody teaches us how to look after our emotional health and process feelings. Mm. Right. All right. So it's one thing for me to say it's okay to have feelings. What do I okay. do now? Have you ever watched a tennis match? Yeah? Oh, don't. (laughs) I'm not not a tennis fan, but go on. They say we have 75,000 thoughts a day. And somewhere I read they said that we have 12,000 emotions, but we have our favorite seven. Not 7,000, but just seven that we like to cycle through. Wow. But if we're just aware of the fact that emotions and thoughts are not us, it's like clothing. It's not your body. It's something that you were experiencing. It's something that you were observing. It's something that you were feeling. It is not yourself. Just knowing that puts you in a really stable, firm place. I'm experiencing this feeling that's coming up. I'm observing these thoughts that I'm having. Don't believe them. I like to say emotions have no brains. Mm. They're dopey. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> <They're dopey. laughs> they affect your brains, yeah. but they don't have any rationality yeah, in like themselves. They're incredibly uncomfortable. And this is where therapy does help. When you work with a professional who teaches you how to go, probably where we can't go too much depth in the podcast, where you can go a lot deeper with a therapist in how to actually process these feelings. Um, One thing that I would just put out there for everybody, the strongest thing is knowing that you are not your thoughts and you are not your feelings. And if you look at your feelings as though they are clouds, so they can come and visit, it's like the weather. And it's going to pass. It's not permanent. It's not the sky. That helps. And they might rain yeah. on you a bit, but it won't yeah, hurt. Yeah, it's raining. I may not like land. I don't need to like the emotion, but it's going to pass. And there's, I was drinking a, a cup of tea a couple of years ago, and I, w- I was blowing on the tea to cool it down. And I noticed as I was blowing on the tea, the tea was hitting the rim of the mug, and it was coming back at me. And I thought, isn't that a perfect analogy for what we do with our feelings? You just push it away. It's going to keep coming back. You push it away. It'll keep coming back. And they keep coming back. <laughs> yes, I have. I have one of these weird personalities, Chantel, that um, I can delay. Like if an emotion overtakes me, I can go. That's not convenient right now. I put it aside. But if I don't actually set some time aside to to work it through, just sit and let it happen, then it bites yeah. me. Like in a week's time or something, if I haven't dealt with it, if I've forgotten about it, it'll come back and bite me. Even if I've forgotten why I was feeling the emotion yeah. in the first place. 
and you've got to set aside time. Like you said, with your health, you've got to set aside time to let stuff cycle through. It might actually be something to do with sleeping patterns too, because if you're not giving yourself the time to allow your brain to de defrag, I was going to use a computer term there, but to kind of undo all of the chaos that's happened through the day, then your brain's still trying to do it when you're trying to go yeah. to sleep. And that's not going to be helping you. Um, we might want to briefly talk about there are several layers we've talked about today. There's this sort of a counselling layer, which which is sort of uh, there's a bit of a soft line there between counselling and therapy, and lots of good people you can contact to talk about that kind of layer. Talking to friends obviously is a good good starting point, but um, obviously if you're not comfortable with that, seek out someone who's trained in that area, and they can give you a good positive direction, and they can refer you on if there's a, a therapy need. In terms of actual substance abuses, the detox and rehab centres around the place are quite good at helping mm -hmm. people. They have to want to help themselves in there somewhere. And um, what I'd like to ask you, though, let's say it's not me. Let's say it's a friend. How can I support that friend? How can I firstly help them come to get help? And how can I help them while they are getting help? Because most people don't know what to do, so they just yeah. back off. And they say, oh, I was just giving you space, man. I was just giving you space. But really, you know, is that the best thing for, when, for helping people? Understanding that your friend is in a life-threatening crisis at the moment and their addiction is their best way to cope. It's keeping them alive while at the same time it's slow suicide. So they need intervention. They need assistance. If we turn a blind eye, we're turning a blind eye to someone's slow suicide. And what they're doing, although okay. it is quite harmful, it is the mind thinking this is what's keeping me alive for now. It's helping them survive the emotional pain that they may or may not be even aware of. So if we have that understanding, we can approach them so much more appropriately where we're not vilifying their actions. We're realizing that this is desperation to survive. Yeah. And so we come from that place of compassion. There's a stigma thing there too, isn't there? And, and a, lot of, um, a lot of people have told me, that once they ask for help and they're, they're like in any kind of formal help, like they've gone to therapy or they've gone to detox or something like that, uh, people around them, they still treat them nicely, but they treat them as if there's some other person now. You know, there's, there's, there's a kind of a stigma attached to it, which means that uh, there's – or maybe we just think there's a stigma yeah. and – uh, that stops people from approaching the help. I think we think there's a stigma because that has not been my experience or with my clients. If anything, we're right. seen as superheroes. <laughs> you think, wow, you've conquered really? that. Yeah. There's a well there's, done, yes. there's a 3% success rate with overcoming addictions in the world, Peter. In the, in world. the world. If you are in that 3%, you're a superhero. You're an absolute superhero. Wow. One one thing to mention there is that often addictions aren't. It's not just a one shot win, um, because once once a, a pattern of behaviour has been established, especially if it's a chemical pattern like alcohol or something like that, um, an alcoholic can't go back to what we would call normal or prior um, the addiction, because any alcohol is not going to be great from then on. Mm. So that they, it's a whole life change, yeah. um, and. And uh, someone is always an alcoholic, but they're simply dry or they're successful in, in beating that. Is it different for Catholics? I mean, for you as a Catholic counsellor, is that different? And the next question is, what about the clients? Is it different for you if the client says they're Catholic or, or believes they're Catholic? 
When I work with clients, generally the, the program cut and dry looks like a very secular program. So it uses a range of different modalities from different schools of therapy. However, if you look at the foundation, it's looking at, it's very Catholic, it's looking at the dignity of the human person. You are valuable. You are worthy. Why are we harming ourselves? When we look at why we are harming ourselves, there are some unconscious beliefs of self-loathing, of unworthiness, of I don't have any value. And these are beliefs we've picked up in childhood. So when a person comes in and if they don't have a faith and they don't want to have a faith, we don't even go down that route. And keeping it down a very secular program, it's Catholic without it being said that it's Catholic. <laughs> if you look at yeah. that. Well, yeah. that's, that's the best kind of Catholic in the sense of dealing with yeah. this kind of thing because your, your, your assumptions are the dignity of every human person, the image yes. of God. And yet that doesn't need to be said for you to care and love and, and work with that assumption. But then you'll have clients who are either Catholic or they have a strong faith in God. Yeah, a strong faith in God. So they might be Muslim or so I, if, if I even think in my current um, group of clients, I have several devout Catholics. Um, I have several devout Muslims and I have a couple of atheists. So right. There's a particular module we do, which I call the diamond. If a person was Catholic, we don't even need to do the module on the diamond. Yeah, we wouldn't even need to because the diamond is saying, remember who you are. Who are you? So by taking away spiritual frame points to make it more accessible for others, I've called it the diamond exercise. If Right. They already had that framework, that belief in God, that connection. We don't need to even do this exercise because it's basically reminding the person who you actually are, and probably to explain it. Provided, of course, they have a they have a solid and, and healthy understanding yes. of their faith. Yeah. yeah, because often often the doubts come from family, and we learn a lot of our religious understanding from family anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, and yeah. part of it is going. If you are the diamond, everything outside the diamond are little gemstones. They're little pebbles. So. And the way that we get to this is pretty cheeky. So they don't even know they're doing the diamond exercises. We say, what are five characteristics you have? And they'll <laughs> tell me five characteristics. What are five talents? What are five interests? What, et cetera, et cetera. So th- this is being, who is Peter? And they'll tell me all these things about who Peter is. And then I'll draw these outside the diamond. And then I'll be like, I'm sorry, but you want, that's not who Peter is. And I'm like, what do you mean that's not who Peter is? And I'll, <laughs> I'll say, there's characteristics, there's talents, but that's not who Peter is. And I'll go, point out, I'll go, that's who Peter is. Because when he was in his mother's womb, I go, he didn't have those talents. He didn't have those characteristics. He didn't have those interests. When he was 15, he had different interests and characteristics and talents. I go, was, he, was that not Peter back then? I go, when he's 80, he'll have different talents, interests. I said, when we make it so visual, I go, who are you? You're that unchangeable thing in the middle. And all the rest yep. is in a constant state of flux. And then the next layer is yep. how valuable is that thing in the middle? How valuable is that diamond? And then we do the story of if, and love clears our vision. And generally we lack self-love. So we use a little. I was going to say self-love seems to be the biggest thing, doesn't it? Huge. Now, correct Mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong. Are we, is basically we can can help, now nothing can ever be certain, but we can help addiction-proof those around us by constantly telling them what they're worth, by constantly being 
um, positive, they, especially that, children. Oh, yes, a hundred percent. For somebody that hasn't yet developed an addiction, there are so many things we can do to prevent this. So many. So right. constantly letting a child know how much they are loved and how valuable they are, and that it also has nothing to do with how others see them. So from right. our Catholic faith, in the eyes of God, I formed you in the palm of my hand. You know, Jeez, you probably are better with giving all the biblical references with how valuable. No, that's yeah. that's beautiful. I'm just smiling because it's absolutely what yeah. I wanted to hear. I mean, honestly, if you want to talk about the future of your own children, go out there and hug them and tell them they are worth yes. everything, not for something they've done, not because they've done a chore, but because of who oh. they are and that, that self-worth that they know they know, and it's long after their parents are gone, they know who they are because their parents have set, given them love and loved them unconditionally and in Peter that sense. research backs this up. There, there's, a, there's a book by Morgan Scott Peck called The Road Less Traveled, and he talks about delayed gratification in the very first chapter and how it's developed in childhood, and there are three factors. One is role modeling, another one is safety and security, and the third one is love. And the most powerful of the three is always love, even if the first two are lacking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when uh, the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family opened in Melbourne, one of the keynote speakers was a statistician who wasn't Catholic. And we said, why are you here? And he said, because he works for the Australian Bureau of Statistics and every single category they measure, a child is better off, more successful, uh, less likely to have the negatives if they've had a mother and a father who are together and, yes. and love them. It's just an undeniable statistic and more than a statistic, it's true. Because these these are the way, parents are the way in which God's love is communicated to us and our, our affirmation, the, the more successful they are at communicating that love, um, the more you know, the less likely we are to believe the lies that we're worthless and there's no one out there who's exactly. worthless. So I guess a good way to finish up and to wrap up this particular message is that if you're listening to this, then you're a human person. And that means you have an unlimited um, dignity and an unlimited value. Um, what other people have said and done to you is irrelevant to that dignity. I mean, it's obviously hurtful and there's all sorts of other experiences that come from that, but the dignity itself is invaluable. You, there's nothing that can buy you or, or there's nothing that can be take that away. Finding that Finding that that reality uh, is our task. It's the way we come to peace with ourselves. And and um, I would strongly recommend, I knew Chantelle because um, I've seen her work at a distance, I must admit, but I've been watching um, her do good work for how long is it now with that uh, with your current oh, group? I've been working in the addiction recovery space for over a decade now. Wow. So 10 years in that space. And clearly there's much more work to be done in affirming people um, and working with uh, people who have temporarily succumbed to the, uh, the, the terrible binding of addictions, um, we need to remember that this is not a, a, ever a defeat. While there's life, there's hope, and there's, there's always a, uh, an improvement that can happen. I want to say thank you, Chantel, for coming and talking to us about this. In particular, um, hearing of your successes is amazing, and also when... You might think nobody watches your videos, I don't know, but the videos that come up on LinkedIn and other things like that, they're quite um, helpful for all of us, not just those who are struggling with this. So before we go, I should ask if there's someone out there feeling that weight of their own troubles and their own uh, lack of peace, but also in terms of struggling with some kind of addictive behavior, where would they go? 
will definitely reach out. So Chantal Marie over here, you can just reach out to us. Also go to your GP. If you require a detox, that is a bit different to a rehabilitation center to detox off that. If you find that you're in a lot of distress and this can't wait, immediately call Lifeline or even call an ambulance. If you do feel that sense of immediacy, there is always help 24-7 around the clock everywhere. So Lifeline, Beyond Blue, they're your general mental health services. You want something a bit more specific for addiction recovery. You have some free support groups. They're not necessarily intensive counseling, but you have Hello Sunday Morning. If you want to look them up, they're free group you know, group support, you get some emails and they can help you hold yourself accountable. If you want specific therapy, reach out for an addictions therapist. That is what our company specializes in. I would not be going to a general therapist for addictions. The therapy does differ quite significantly. Residential treatment is also brilliant for those that do require residential. The longer you stay in residential, the better your outcomes. Uh, and also it can take several tries in different treatment facilities for it to stick don't give up keep trying it is worth it yep you've not lost until you've given up that's that's absolutely never give up we're going to ask Chantel for all those links and we'll put them all in the show notes for this show so check them out there Um, they'll, they'll be there permanently on this show that's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device, let us know. You can subscribe to the podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au. You can tell us what you liked, what you didn't like. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Discord. Uh, write us a review on iTunes and help other people find the podcast. It's a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast, and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends. Before we go, have you got a shout out, Chantel? Shout out to everybody that's thinking that they might have a habit and they're not sure if this is the right time. This is the right time. Do something about it. Nice. I want to shout out to my family who um, are constantly in my face, constantly demanding things of me, constantly reminding me of when I've worked too hard. Workaholism is my drug. Uh, constantly calling me to account for that purpose and as annoying and as wonderful as you are uh, you save me in so many ways thank you very much that's all for now thank you for listening to this catholic life thank you